Well, welcome to Armageddon and Beyond. Thank you for being here tonight. Want to uh, extend a, an acknowledgement tonight. I had help with the initial preparations for the PowerPoints. Uh, Joshua Moody was a student at DTS. He's now uh, on staff with Search Ministries uh, up in the Northeast, and he just did a fantastic job of helping me when I was just getting started with PowerPoint. So shout out to Joshua Moody. Thank you, Joshua and Rhonda. You're great people. All right. What if the media announced Armageddon? How would news media announce the end of the world? It might go something like this. Sports Illustrated. Game's over. Ladies Home Journal. Lose 10 pounds by Judgment Day with our new Armageddon diet. Inc. Magazine. Ten ways you can profit from the apocalypse. CNN. World ends. Women and children most affected. And finally, AOL. System temporarily down. Try again in 15 minutes. <laughs> well, we're doing Armageddon and beyond. And um, last time we met, we did the initial lead-up to it, and I explained to you that Arnold Fruchtenbaum has taken the various scriptures from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he has laid out a chronological order. A lot of times we talk about the battle of Armageddon. He says, and I agree with this, there is no record of a battle taking place at Armageddon. Rather, it is a mountain range and a valley and the valley is where the various troops of different nations converge in order to make formation to attack the Jewish people. So Arnold Fruchtenbaum has come up with eight stages as he lays it out. And I've read that and I follow his pattern. Uh, others have acknowledged the good uh, work he's done, like Thomas Ice, a prophecy scholar, also follows this pattern. So not everybody will... Laid out this way, but Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a scholar of scholars, and uh, I think he's done a great job. So, we'll review the two portions that we covered last week briefly and jump in at number three. First, um, the, uh, the green circles, do you see those? With the J and the P and the B. Those represent cities. What cities do you remember? What cities are those? Jerusalem is J. Babylon is B. Good. Petra. Good. Petra is the P, way down, down south. And there are some C's. What's the C on the far west side? It's uh, the Mediterranean Sea, Club Med. And the two seas connected by a river uh, on the other border of Israel. Uh, you have the Sea of Galilee up north. It's a beautiful sea. Uh, you go there, there's a lot of greenery around it. There's fish. There's uh, parasailing. You've got all sorts of fun things, beautiful scenery up there. 
And then you have the Jordan Valley, which dead ends right at the lowest place on earth. And that's the Dead Sea. Something like 1,400 feet below sea level. And because it is the lowest point, water can only go into it. And so whatever comes in the way of minerals or pollution or whatever, what goes in stays in. So do you have any fish in the Dead Sea? Not at all. That's why they call it dead, you see? <laughs> all right. In stage number one, we have the gathering of the armies of Antichrist. Just a quick review. Um, we believe, I believe, that uh, originally the Antichrist started with a confederation of ten nations, but now he has moved his capital to Babylon. And we are in the second half, really at the end of the second half of the tribulation. And his great desire, which follows Satan's desire, is to destroy the Jewish people. Other than just hating people, he also hates God. And God has a plan. God has a plan that's not finished yet. And God wants to fulfill his plan. And Satan hates God and wants to interfere with God's plan. And so the way to do that is to destroy destroy the Jewish people. And then God cannot fulfill his plan for the Jewish people. So he marches on Israel. He's in the northern part of Israel. He summons the various nations, as we'll see shortly, and they converge and bivouac at the valley of Armageddon. Phase number two, the destruction of Babylon. Well, you've seen that Antichrist has marched from his capital, Babylon, taken his whole army to the northern part of Israel. That leaves his capital vulnerable. And Babylon has always been an enemy of God. It's not only a city, it's also the system. You have the both of them described at the end of Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And so the city and the, the system are one, and God hates them, and God wants to destroy them. He will use other armies. And so at this point, the armies in that area, we don't know which specific armies, but the armies that hate Antichrist converge on a city and take his city, as we saw last time. Stage three, we come to the fall of Jerusalem. The next event, Antichrist, realizing that his capital is destroyed, turns and launches his intended attack against Jerusalem. So here we have the fall of Jerusalem. Antichrist will lead all the armies from the valley of Armageddon in the north toward Jerusalem. Well, if you are the Jewish people and this man, Antichrist, has said, worship me or die, because he did that in chapter 13 of Revelation, and he starts killing people, including the Jewish people. And, and it talks about the numbers of people in Israel, what portion will be destroyed. If you're seeing that happen, and your arch enemy is up north, and he's headed south towards you, which way are you going to go? If he's coming from the northwest, which direction are you going to go? Southeast, right? Southeast. All right. So he, he marches, but many people leave Jerusalem, but not all. 
Zechariah chapter 12. Chapter 12 and chapter 14 are really key to the study of end time events. So here we have chapter 12. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth, which nations? All the nations of the earth are gathered against her. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all nations. All who try to remove it will injure themselves. So here is a picture of modern day Israel. And as you can see, still many of the uh, buildings are built out of rock, big stones. And this picture um, is that. Much of it, even today, is built the old-fashioned way. There's stone in the ground, so you just dig up the stone and you dress it or cut it to size and you make buildings out of it. Well, imagine, as you look at this picture, trying to lift one of these, one of these stones. It would seem immovable. In the same way, Jerusalem will seem immovable when the enemy attacks. When the nations attack, God will initially throw the nations into confusion. Look at the next verse. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Will horses really be used? All right, there are two theories on this, two interpretations. One, these are literal horses. Perhaps gas prices keep going up. Or two, this is a first century way of describing modern events. I tend to lean with number one. Uh, you know, we have uh, EMPs now, you can get an electric pulse, where instead of a nuclear weapon that destroys everything, total destruction, you, you have an EMP and it will um, just melt all of the electrical um, units and circuits in cars and trucks and tanks, and there'd be no way to move them. Well, what's the fallback? Horses. And it describes horses and riders. So I'm not deeply concerned which of those two interpretations you take, but I wanted to share that. Now we jump ahead to Zechariah chapter 14. And this is still involving this siege, this attack, but it's further down the road time-wise. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather, and this is God speaking, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. Now, Antichrist thought he was gathering all these nations. But can God use the thoughts and intentions of evil people to serve his plan? Yeah, he can. And he is here. I will gather the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. 
Remember, Israel is still in rebellion at this time. In fact, most of the people in Israel are practical atheists. Either they don't believe in God or they live if if they didn't believe in God. There are a few who are God-fearing to the degree that they believe in the God of the Old Testament, but they too have rejected their Messiah. So, you know, periodically in the Bible, sometimes I read things, like I was reading Numbers this morning, things that just, you know, it's hard to reconcile with our mindset. How can God let this happen? And yet, God has a purpose. And God's purpose is to put Israel's back against the wall to where Israel has no choice but to give up their atheism and their rejection of God and all that's left is for them to cry out to God. I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard the saying that when the enemy attacks and you're a foxhole, there are no atheists in foxholes. In this case, Israel does turn back to God. It will happen. They will ultimately turn and receive their Messiah, but as for now, they are in rebellion and unbelief. So God does not ultimately deliver them at this time. He allows Antichrist to take Jerusalem. Look in Zechariah 14, 1 and 2. Oh, we've read that. We'll go on. So, now we come to stage four. The armies of Antichrist march to Basra, or Petra. Basra is in the ancient land of Edom, or present-day southern Jordan. So here we have the map again. This is stage four, and the Antichrist marches to Petra in pursuit of the Jews. Remember, he started up in the valley by Armageddon, and he assembled all of his armies, and they're, they're ready to attack Israel, and they begin their march towards Jerusalem. Many of the Jewish people flee in the opposite direction, and they flee to a place called Basra, or modern-day Petra. And he pursues them after he's captured Jerusalem. He marches down to Petra. Jeremiah 49. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that... Basra will become a ruin and an object of horror as Antichrist is marching. He's destroying everything. It will be an object of horror, of reproach, and of cursing, and all its towns will be ruins forever. I've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, assemble yourselves to attack it. Rise up for battle. Again, Basra is this ancient city called Petra. This is a site in ancient Edom, or modern-day Jordan. It's, in, it's south of Jerusalem. And again, if, you, uh, if you've seen this, um, well, if you've seen this movie, the third installment of Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones comes to this city. He comes to Petra, and there's an entrance to Petra because this is kind of flat ground up above, and it is indented into the ground very, very deeply. But there's an arch entrance, too small for a car to drive through. You can only get there by horseback. And so you see Indiana Jones and his friends riding through there. Actually, that is about a mile long, so quite a long entrance. 
When you go get to the guts of Petra, you find a city carved into the rock. It is a natural place for Jews who are running for their lives to flee. Now, look carefully at the screen. Do you see the people on this screen? Look at the very bottom. You see something that looks like an ant? All right, that's a person. So that gives you something of the perspective of the size of this. It's enormous. And the Jews are hiding out there. And so Antichrist will leave Jerusalem and march south to Petra because his goal is to annihilate all of the Jewish people. Well, Revelation 12 describes this time. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Now, it is true that, that heaven is not the normal abode of Satan, of the devil. But we see in the book of Job that he has access, that he can come there, and he and God have this discussion about Job and you remember that. Well, now, finally, he is, like, ejected out of heaven, and he knows his time is short. So he is very intent on total destruction of anything. Next verse. When the dragon, Satan, saw he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. First of all, who do you think the woman is? The Jewish people, yes. Some th people think the Virgin Mary. But I believe, it, I believe it is Israel because you go back into the book of Genesis and you see what's described in chapter 12 and you find, find the same imagery of the 12 tribes of Israel back in Genesis. So I think it's uh, clearly Israel. Now, what significant male child did Israel produce? Jesus, yes. The woman, Israel, was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. What do you think it's talking about when it says time, times, and half a time? Three and a half years. The second half of the tribulation. When Satan comes against the Jews in full force and wants to destroy them, they flee to Petra and God protects them there. And this is one of the few places on earth that he doesn't have control of. He's not able to get to them because God is protecting his people. <laughs> uh, the wings of the great eagle. Um, and that's not America, okay? Wings speak of speed. And so this is talking about traveling with great speed. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water. What's the next word? Like a river. To overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed 
out of its mouth. So here's an artist's conception of that. If you go back to Revelation chapter 12, you'll see that this chapter begins with a sign in heaven. It is a woman which symbolizes Israel. And the dragon symbolizes the devil. And I believe that the water also is symbolic. But somehow the earth, the people, we're not exactly sure how, it prevents Satan from reaching the Jewish people. Like water traveling in a flood and all of a sudden a great crevice opens up and all the water falls down. They're protected. They're safe. So later, the dragon pursues the woman into the desert where she stays for three and a half years. And there's a picture of the earth swallowing up the water. Well, this time of persecution of Israel is foretold in Daniel as well. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall. But Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Amnon will be delivered from his hand. Well, this is the area around Basra. This is the area that God protects so the Jewish people will be safe. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, Antichrist, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. Daniel 11 is kind of panorama panorama of a great many things in prophecy. And this is this portion that deals with Antichrist. And I just find that fascinating that seven centuries beforehand, the Antichrist is being laid out as something future. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Antichrist is camped between the seas, probably between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, right at Jerusalem. He's at the beautiful holy mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And Antichrist will attempt to destroy Israel, but he will be destroyed. When his time is over, it's over. Now we come to stage five, national regeneration for Israel. Israel rejected Jesus. Today, they still do. Before God can restore them, they must repent of the sin of rejecting their Messiah. Not so much for his crucifixion. The Roman government tried and convicted Jesus. And the reason Jesus went to the cross is for people like us. He died for our sins. It wasn't that his life was taken from him. He willingly gave his life as a payment for our sins so that we could be with him forever. So let's not, as some people do, blaspheme the Jews and blame the Jews for being responsible for this. I think all of us bear some culpability. As I said, Jesus went voluntarily to the cross. His death was a payment for our sins. He is our substitute. He died when we should have. His death paid for all sin. So we carry much of the blame. And if anybody here or anybody online has never heard this or 
never received Christ as their Savior. Please understand that he died for your sin and for my sin. That's no longer the issue. The issue is, do we accept that? Do we take God at his word and believe what the Bible says? Do we believe in our Savior, in Jesus, and what he did on the cross? If you've never done that, you could do that right now. And I encourage you to do so. Believe that Christ, Jesus, died for you, paid for your sin, and rose again. We talked about Israel. The fascinating thing is, someday they will do what I just described to you. They will repent of their sin, of rejecting the Messiah. They will cry out to God. And one portion of Scripture says, two days they will cry out to God, and on the third day, as we will see, something very special happens. So we come to the part where Israel cries out to God for help. Now, where are many, perhaps most of the Jews that are still alive at this time? Petra and surrounding areas. Zechariah 12 again. And I, God speaking, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of supplication. They will look upon me. Now, who's speaking? Who are they looking upon? God. Okay. They will look upon me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Imagine you've lost your firstborn son. And that extreme grief. And that's the way that these Jewish people will grieve over what happened to their Messiah, what their ancestors did, and their part in rejecting him up until this part. Well, let me ask you a question. This says, God is speaking, they pierced him. When was God pierced? When Jesus, who is the Son of God, God in the flesh when he was on the cross. Well, now Israel recognizes Jesus and grieves for what they have done. Verse 11. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem, verse 1 of chapter 13, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Oftentimes in Scripture, water is used as a picture of cleansing. We wash our clothes and they come out clean. When God washes us and he forgives us, we're clean in his sight. Well, they repent and they are cleansed, forgiven of their sin. Joel chapter 2, and Joel is a very short three-chapter book, a prophetic book that speaks about the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, the day of God's wrath, and that's what we're covering in the book of Revelation. Look at this, verse 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit, God is still speaking, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. 
even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. With their reception of Messiah, the Holy Spirit comes. And he confirms that. You know, in Acts chapter 2, there were gifts of the Spirit that confirmed in a very visual way that the Spirit had come. So here, what are, what are these things that are predicted for Israel? What do you see in this passage? Yep, okay. Yeah, they're going to be prophets. Well, in the Old Testament, you might have one prophet, right? And the whole nation is listening or not listening. You might have one prophet. How many are prophesying now? It sounds like the Spirit is coming on everyone, young and old, rich and poor, free and slave. They're just everybody is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they're receiving prophetic messages, and they dream dreams, and they see visions. Can you imagine Can you imagine what that will be like when God pours out his spirit in those days? Come, Lord Jesus. It continues. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Jews will be believers. They will have received Jesus as their Messiah. They will have the Holy Spirit. Now they look and Antichrist is about to wipe them out. What do they do? What would you do? Call out to God, right? Get on your knees and pray fervently, devoutly. And they call on Jesus to come. So what happens? The second coming. The second coming of Christ. So next he comes. And where is he now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. He descends. I believe previously he came back and in the rapture he took believers up to heaven. This time he doesn't go back to heaven. It's not a yo-yo. It's straight down. And he actually touches down. He returns to earth. He came the first time he walked this earth He's coming again, Jesus is, and he will walk this earth a second time. The greatest event we can ever hope for comes. Revelation 19. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, 
And his name is the Word of God. So we have the second coming of Christ. What color is his robe? What does the text say about that? It is carrying the blood of his enemies. They have been slain. Oftentimes we think, God, how can you allow them to do that? How can, how can you allow Putin to do what he's doing? When are you going to do something? Are you going to do something, God? And he says, I will. And he does. Revelation 19 records the second coming. The armies of heaven, it's plural. I take that to mean the angelic host and the believers. Armies, plural, coming with him. They were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth, out of Messiah's mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You understand this is symbolic language. I don't picture a literal sharp sword coming out of his mouth. It's a picture of, of him speaking the word and, and killing them. One, one uh, Bible teacher of renown asked, once asked the question, these horses, are they the kind of horses that, that you would ride in the Kentucky Derby? Probably not. Either it's a symbol or... They could be angelic beings of some sort. But anyway, they start in heaven, they come back. He speaks the word, judgment takes place. On his robe and on his thigh, this name was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Who is Jesus? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, we have the second coming of Christ. Beautiful thing to anticipate. I, I look forward to that day when wrong things are made right. Well, what is the second coming? Here's a definition. The great event which will wind up this present age. Premillennialists, which is what I am, and by the way, which is what the early church was for the first two centuries. We believe that Christ will come to establish a visible earthly kingdom for at least 1,000 years over Israel. Sometimes people say that the second coming is the same as the rapture. So I want to draw some distinctions here. I, I believe that they're different. I believe they're separated by at least seven years. On the left, you have the rapture. On the right, you have the second coming. With the rapture, you have the translation of all believers. That is, they, they are given new bodies. We're given new bodies at that time. But the second coming, no translation. The rapture, saints go up to heaven. Second coming, saints come down to earth. With the rapture, the earth is not judged. With the second coming... The earth is judged. With the rapture, it's imminent. It's signless. There's no sign telling you this is, this is it. But the second coming 
has signs that prefigure it. For example, in, um, in Matthew 24 and 25. The rapture is not in the Old Testament. It never is revealed in the Old Testament. The second coming is predicted in the Old Testament. The rapture is for believers only. The second coming affects all. The rapture is before the day of wrath. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and again at the end of the book in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So the rapture is before the day of wrath. The second coming concludes the day of wrath. It's the grand finale. With the rapture, Satan is not mentioned. But with the second coming, Satan will be bound. Friends, you see all the horrible things going on in this world today. Now, I know we have a sin nature and we contribute to that. But things seem to be going from bad to worse in many cases. And I think Satan's responsible for that. I think he is free. In fact, there one one writer said there are a dozen verses that talk about how Satan is affecting people today, is affecting believers today in this time, in this age. But in the age to come, will he mess with us? No, he's going to be bound, literally held away by the power of God. And we'll be free to live our, our lives without his interference. Well, now back to the progression. And here we are at stage seven, the final battle. In the seventh phase, Jesus the Messiah will fight alone on Israel's behalf, destroying the Antichrist and those who have come against the nation of Israel and persecuted it. Among the very first casualties will be the Antichrist himself. Having ruled the world with great power spoken against the true Son of God, the counterfeit Son will be powerless before Christ. So here we have the map and the destruction of the armies of Antichrist. Christ has returned, I believe, to Petra to rescue the people as they are in Petra, calling out for him to rescue them in Petra. But from there he will go back to his capital city. He'll return to Jerusalem and all the armies are stretched out, all the nations, Antichrist, and all the other nations that have contributed military equipment, personnel. He just takes them out as he goes to Jerusalem. Back to Revelation 19. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses, and this is one of the reasons I think it literally is horses, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast the beast is another name for uh, the Antichrist, right, Satan's son. 
Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Now, initially they came to attack Israel, right? They come to Israel. They come to the land of Israel. But when Christ returns and he fights for Israel, the battle turns and they want to attack him. Well, we know what's the use in that, but they're going to try. But the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. So are, are we getting our AR-15s? And No. D does Christ need us to? No. <laughs> he doesn't. They were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So here's an artist's conception of the beast and the false prophet being thrown and descending into the lake of fire. I need your help for the next slide. When I put the next slide up, I want you to shout out one word. The first word that comes to your mind. Are you ready? One, two, three. Who said victory? You're, you're right. That's, that's the exact word that I have. And isn't that a great word to describe what has just happened? Isn't that a great word to describe God concluding his plan and bringing judgment on those who have rejected him and persecuted mankind, and kill people. They're murderers, they're sorcerers, they're evil, they're bent on self, and they're gone. And all that's left are people who want Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. So now we come to stage eight, the final part, the ascent up the Mount of Olives. Now, you have Jerusalem, and it's on a hill called Mount Zion. And you have a valley, the Kidron Valley, down below. And then it goes up. And across the valley is the Mount of Olives. Remember where Christ took his disciples? And, uh, and it was up on this mountain, on this hill. And that's where they went, to the Mount of Olives. He's coming back. Stage 8. The victory ascent on the Mount of Olives. The real triumphal entry. First one didn't go so good. But this is the real triumphal entry. After the actual fighting is completed, there will be a victory ascent up the Mount of Olives, which is described in Zechariah chapter 14. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Now since this passage is so often used as evidence that Christ will initially return to the Mount of Olives, and remember I've said, and I'm going by Arnold Fruchtenbaum's 
advice here that he first comes to Petra to save the ones that are in Petra, and then he comes to Jerusalem and up the Mount of Olives. So this needs a little more careful study, especially in light of other passages. Well, earlier in the context, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 7, stated that Christ will save the tents of Judah prior to saving the Jews in Jerusalem. Tents imply they're not in Jerusalem. And this is probably Basra or Petra. So here we look up and review the last events in the campaign of Armageddon. Revelation 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city, and what city would that be? Jerusalem, his capital. The great city is split into three parts. And the cities of the nations around the globe collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Major topographical changes will occur. Some people have uh, noted that there's a coming millennial temple and I believe it will be built after this. We'll talk about it some in the future. But in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, nine chapters, you get a very detailed description of the land of Israel and the layout of the tribes. Nothing like it has ever been before. And a description of this new temple that Christ will come in and he will be our high priest and our king. But they've noted that, hey, you couldn't get the dimensions in the current land of Israel. Well, guess what? God's going to change that. And here we see it. Verse 21. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. And they turned to him? No. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So friends, here we are, the last seven. We saw that the seven seals and the seventh seal opened a new series of judgments called the seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet opens the final round of judgments, the seven bowl judgments. So with the seventh bowl, a voice cries out, it is finished. Because of the seventh bowl, it brings the tribulation to a definite end. This declaration will be followed by convulsions of nature, including the greatest earthquake to ever occur in the history of the earth. Many geographical changes will take place and hail will fall, weighing as much as 100 pounds. 
This earthquake is further described back in Zechariah chapter 14. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives would be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half of it moving south. And he says that the people of Israel, you will flee by my mountain valley, this valley that has just been created by the mountain dividing. For it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So here you are in Jerusalem looking past the valley and up the slope of the Mount of Olives. And it says this will be split from north to south. Well, not only will Jerusalem be split into three divisions, but the Mount of Olives will be split into two parts, creating a valley running east to west. This newly formed valley will provide a way of escape for the Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem from the earthquake that will destroy the city. In this way, the inhabitants of Jerusalem will be rescued following the deliverance of other Jews in Basra. Another cataclysmic event that will take place at this time is the fifth blackout described in Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. The earthquake and the blackout of this time is also described in Joel chapter 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun, moon, sun and moon will be darkened and the stars will will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and the earth and the sky will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. With the multitudes defeated in the closing day of the Lord in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the fifth blackout will occur as well as a great earthquake. But a refuge will be provided for the Jews from these cataclysmic events by means of this valley we've talked about and it will cut through the Mount of Olives spoken by Zechariah. The great tribulation will come to an end with these cataclysmic events, and this will bring a close to dominion known as the times of the Gentiles. Way back when, when Israel turned away from God, God announced judgment, and their country and the city of Jerusalem, and especially the, uh, the place where the temple stood, are all 
to be placed under Gentile control. And, and in chapter 2 of Daniel, it gives a succession of four major powers. You know, Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, or modern-day Iran, and then Greece. Uh, Alexander the Great came in, and then his four generals after him, and then finally, Rome. And then there's a break, a, a gap in the timeline, a gap in the calendar. And in there, we have something that was unknown in the Old Testament, the church age. What we're experiencing was unknown because when Christ came, he truly wanted to give Israel the opportunity to repent, to turn from their sin, turn to him, and allow him to be their Messiah and their king. But they rejected him. And so Israel was put on the shelf for a time. And God said, church, it's your turn. Play ball. Go make disciples. Go tell people about Christ. But these events are yet future. And when these come into play, Christ will come back. And he will take Israel off the shelf. And he will put his plan into effect. And this time, Israel will be saved. They'll believe in their Messiah. And he will come for them. This slide is included because of a tradition not found in Scripture. It's said that once the Messiah comes to the Mount of Olives on the east, he will descend and then enter through the east gate of Jerusalem. Perhaps in an effort to block this entrance, the Muslims, followers of Islam, have walled up the entrance to the east gate. You can see it there, can you not? See where that tower is, and you see the arches, and it's bricked up. Can't go through it. Well, in addition, they have also filled the entrance area with graves, which would defile an area, perhaps in a hope that he could never return because of the defilement. Well, the graves closest to the gate are Muslim. Those farther out are Christian graves. And finally, there are Jewish graves. But these graves have something none of the other graves have. They have a light, an Israelite. All right. These graves, will these graves stop the king of Israel from entering his capital? Of course not. Nor will any other effort by man or Satan. God is sovereign. He is in control. When his time is right, he will return. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, I've reached the end of today's topic, but it's a lot to take in, is it not? Well, you've been a good group. Let's review. In this review, we will look again at the eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon. We've already identified the cities, Jerusalem, Petra, and Babylon, and the seas, the Mediterranean Sea, and then from the north you have the Sea of Galilee, and in the south you have the Dead Sea. And what is the rectangular-shaped valley in yellow? Armageddon. So, at Armageddon, we have the gathering of the armies 
of Antichrist. That's the first stage. So, the Antichrist, who has made Babylon his capital, uh, says that the river Euphrates will dry up so that these uh, troops can just march right across. And that's a pretty impressive feat because at the widest point, um, when it's in full strength, the river, river Euphrates is 12 miles wide. So, as it dries up, and that's the sixth seal, uh, these armies come across and they attack. And the armies of the world also are brought. Antichrist summons them. And some might have some misgivings about this. And so demonic spirits are sent out to perform miracles and signs to impress everyone so that all of the leaders of the world will be in agreement with his plan. And they all converge at Armageddon. With the Antichrist and his armies away at Armageddon, other nations will attack his capital, the city of Babylon. So with him away, with his armies away, this capital is not able to be defended and armies converge on that and take it. You see the, uh, the, record, the record of this happening in, in um, Revelation 17 to 18. And it is fulfilling prophecies that were made back in Isaiah 13, and 14, and Jeremiah 51 and 52. And some people try to find fulfillment in those, you know, back seven centuries earlier. But then you come to Revelation, and it still hasn't happened. And it still has never happened the way it was predicted. And I just believe if God makes a prediction, just like he predicted Christ would come, he said he would be born where? In Bethlehem. Where was he born? In Bethlehem. So if the first coming, the predictions were fulfilled just the way they were described, literally, how would you expect the second coming to be fulfilled? And the judgment on God's enemies. Done just as he says. So we see the destruction of Babylon, but Antichrist at this point is in Israel, northern Israel. So we come to number three, the fall of Jerusalem. So Antichrist and his army, plus the armies from various countries around the globe who are bivouacked, staging area of Armageddon, that great big valley, they travel south to Jerusalem and they attack the capital city. And Jerusalem initially will be very difficult to conquer. God initially will support their effort and they'll do amazingly and they will seem to be winning but because they haven't trusted Christ, they haven't received their Messiah, ultimately Jerusalem will fall. So stage number four. The Antichrist marches to Petra in pursuit of the Jews. So if you're in Jerusalem, you're a Jewish people and you know this bloodthirsty tyrant is coming with all the armies of the earth to your city and he's coming from the northwest, you're going southeast. And that's exactly what they do. Well, once he takes the city of Jerusalem, and many Jews have escaped, and his desire is to fulfill Satan's plan to annihilate the Jewish people. By the way, you see this again and again and again throughout history. Look at Hitler. 
what did they say, six million Jews were annihilated in just a matter of years? Satan has always hated the Jewish people. So Antichrist will pursue them down to their hideaway, their getaway of Petra. Stage number five. Israel cries out to God for help. I think it's in Hosea. It says they will cry out to him for two days, and on the third day, he will come. Which leads us to the second coming of Christ. As the Jews face extermination, they will call out to the Lord to save them, finally recognizing Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And in response to their pleas, he will come. Number seven, the destruction of the armies of Antichrist. Christ arrives in time to save the Jewish people and destroys the attacking armies all the way up to and including Jerusalem. And number eight, the victory ascent on the Mount of Olives, the real triumphal entry. So how can we apply this to our lives? Let's talk about it. We have not entered these days. Well, there are different opinions about the verses that we have covered tonight. I've offered you one opinion. I encourage you to study for yourselves and see if these things are true. One thing we know for sure, the world system, Babylon if you choose to call it that, is going down. Take it as a symbol of all that opposes to God. You basically have two ways before you. God's way and the world's way. One leads to rewards and the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. The other way, the world's way, is a dead end. We've seen what happens to those who reject Christ. It isn't pretty. Although I don't like to talk about these dark things, it is important that we see God's unveiling of the future. God is patient now, but he will deal with all who oppose him. Assuming you've placed your faith in Christ, that is, you have eternal life, I pose you a question. Are you living the life that pleases our God and Savior? If so, great. If not, what changes might you make to bring your life in line with God's plan for you? Choose life, and God will bless you. Choose rebellion, and he will deal with you as a son, and no one wants to be taken to the woodshed for a whooping. Choose life. Father God, we pray to you. We thank you for the revelation of God. We, we thank you, Father, for the word that talks about the return of Christ and all that means in bringing this world into judgment and passing through there to great glory, which we'll get to talk about, Lord willing, in the next week. Father, we thank you for the hope that you have laid out in your word 
of the return of Christ. It is our blessed hope. We thank you. We pray in his name. Amen.